It's like it, it needs that lawnmower style combat and those floating <laughs> controls. It's like that's part of the experience. Lawnmower style combat. I want to hear that as a pitch on a box art for something yeah, someday. Yeah, be a bullet point. Episode 10 of Rhythm Encounter, the RPG fan music podcast. I'm Derek Hamesbergen, Embryon on the Boards. I'm one of your hosts today, along with my fine co-pilot. Stephen Myring, Talos on the Boards. And we have an extra super-duper special guest today. We have Tom Lipschultz, the localization specialist from Exceed Games. Hey, how's it going? Tom is here today to uh, speak with us about Falcom music, and specifically rare and obscure Falcom music, because Tom is an en- uh, basically an encyclopedia of all those things. Human encyclopedia. I am. Yeah. I, I want. I wanted to share this. Is we were discussing tracks before we did the show, and via email, Tom Tom apologized for writing too much, and I was sitting there going, "This is great. No, don't ever apologize." I've already learned a ton, so I'm actually excited to talk about the music we're talking about today because I don't know much of anything about this, unlike Derek and Tom, so I'm excited to to learn. Even my knowledge is middling compared to what Tom knows, so... I mean, I don't know how much I actually know about the music itself beyond, like, this sounds pretty. Hey, that's that's all we need. That's how we analyze sometimes. There were... Some of the things that we're going to listen to are literally from things that I've just never in a million years would have heard of, so I'm really excited to kind of dig into the Falcon that people might not know, because I think, you know, you get Yeez, you get uh, Sora no Kiseki, but the, beyond that, I'm not terribly familiar with it, so I think this will be really interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of worried that after this, people are going to think I'm like a total uh, a Falcom uh, hipster or something. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think you've been ahead of the curve for a long time. So we're going to start the show today with, uh, we've got two tracks. Full disclosure, Tom picked most of our tracks today up until the end, and we'll we'll let you know when I have a couple of tracks from, from myself and Steven. But we're beginning with a couple of tracks from a game called VM Japan. Would you like to tell us about that, Tom? Yeah, VM Japan was a, a PC release in, I don't know, 2003, 2004, somewhere in the early 2000s. It's a sequel to the Vantage Master 1 and 2 series, but set in, like, medieval Japan. And it's got the instruments to, to go along with that. Yeah, the the Vantage Master games are kind of like, like a hexagonal turn-based strategy game, right? Yeah, it's uh, I like to call that genre like a board game RPG, because it, it's like one player versus another, head-to-head combat, all turn-based, and all very, like, the sort of thing you could do with, like, a board game and pieces and dice and stuff. Which is not exactly the kind of thing you think of when you think of Falcom. No, but it's it's really good, and I gotta say, every one of the Vantage Master games has, like, the most ruthless AI I have ever seen in a game. If you play against a computer, you are gonna lose, like, no matter what. It's you have my interest. Yeah, <laughs> Steven digs a challenge, for sure. This is the guy who uh, plays every game on the hardest difficulty possible on his first go-through. So bringing us in today, uh, first track is Warriors from VM Japan, followed by Narrative of an Illusion.
So I was telling Derek and Tom while we were listening that for the past, like, ever since Tom sent his picks over, I was like, okay, Warriors, VM Japan, let's take a look at this. And we've been playing Final Fantasy XIV, and every day, every morning, I'm like, Derek, Derek, Warriors is awesome. I know you told me. No, 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 no. No, did you listen, though? Yeah, I listened. It was really good. So I'm a huge fan of that first track. And again, we talked to they're, they're like hex-based, turn-based RPGs. If you want to talk a little bit about that, maybe? So, yeah, they're... Uh... They're what I like to call board game RPGs, where pretty much you could duplicate the experience with, like, a board game and pieces and dice and stuff. But, of course, it's got the flashy animations and all that when you play the game itself and the excellent music to go with it. And, yeah, it's it's actually a really challenging, really fun game, but it's kind of notable if you play it one player like the computer ai is ridiculous like insanely good at playing the game and will totally kick your ass every time kind of amazing so when did those games originally come out well it's vm japan is i guess technically the third vantage master game mm-hmm. the uh, first two came out in the late 90s i think like 98 and 99 they're basically the same game just vantage master 2 has uh, different maps and that's it. Otherwise, it's exactly the same. What's kind of interesting, though, is Vantage Master 2, Falcom themselves translated most of the game to English and released it online as a free download. So you can actually play Vantage Master 2 for free with a Falcom English translation, and it's kind of, you know, very Englishy, which kind of adds to the charm a little bit, but it's totally playable. A lot of fun. Same basic gameplay as what you'll find in VM Japan, so I recommend checking it out if you get a chance. And these are all for PC? Yes. Uh, well, actually, uh, there was a remake of the first Vantage Master. Oh, yes. Portable, yeah. Yeah, on uh, PSP called Vantage Master Portable. Actually came about because Falcom held a poll online to see what Falcom properties fans wanted to see resurrected. And the top results were Soronokiseki, Brandish, Spy, and Vantage Master. And so immediately after that poll was conducted, they released the next Soronokiseki game, Vantage Master Portable, Brandish Dark Revenant, and Spy uh, PSP and Spy 2. They weren't messing around. They listened. Wow. Yeah. And it was kind of cool. I know that you've said before that the PSP is your favorite system, so this is yeah. it's making it clearer and clearer why. Yeah, oh man, and all of them are such amazing ports, too. Like, yeah, Vantage Master Portable, they really upgraded it. They did the same thing they do with all of their uh, PSP remakes, where they literally arranged every track from the original soundtrack and created, like, an all-new version of the soundtrack 
with the ability to toggle back to the original if you'd prefer. Oh man, I they, love that. They do that all the time. They did the same thing with Brandish. They did the same thing with Tsvai also. And uh, they're all such fantastic remakes. Really, really great games. BM Japan has a really uh, a really great sound to it. And a lot of people back when the soundtrack first came out were saying that they would rank it as Falcom's best soundtrack, which I don't know if I necessarily agree, but it's definitely up there. It's one of those, though, where I actually think the first disc is much stronger than the second. So you were saying that I, if, when we were recording you were saying that the second disc tends to be a little bit more fillery and it does it does overall yeah though there are a couple standout tracks on the second disc and uh, a couple tracks that remind me of like final fantasy 6 and final fantasy 5 also like there's one that i swear sounds a lot like cyan cyan's theme from ff6 and another that sounds a little bit like battle uh clash on the big bridge i'm gonna have to hunt that down and listen to it because i warriors you were saying that warriors is like a lot of people's fan favorite and that's the, that, that track is the one that i got hooked on but narrative and of an illusion what i really liked about it was when i first listened to it i knew nothing about the game and i didn't even have art because the a youtube link i was looking at just basically had like a dark screen with the title and uh so i heard it and i go this game must have heavy japanese influences and they it, so i recently reviewed miramasa rebirth and one of my favorite parts about the game aside from the fact that it's gorgeous and has all these you know traditional japanese influences that base escape took like traditional japanese sounds and then combine them with like really heavy, more modern, like electronic stuff. And it has this really distinct sound, but the tracks I've heard from Yu Japan have a more traditional sound that is really kind of cool to hear in a game. Yeah, it's it's a great soundtrack. Definitely uh, has, I, I mean, it, it has that, traditional sound for a reason the game itself is very very steeped in like japanese traditional imagery and culture if you look on youtube and watch the opening movie to vm japan i mean it's kind of amazing it's got like chinese dragons flying through rows of tori gates and you know like a woman in a kimono doing like a traditional dance with fans and Mm. all kinds of like very traditional japanese imagery going on but it's all very beautifully done and 3d rendered too which is something you don't see from a lot of falcom openings unless it's the uh, Ark of Nephishtim U.S. opening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Which true. Was, that's not, mm. not Falcom, though. Yeah, that's. I guess you're right. Yeah, it's Konami. Oh, Konami. What oh, were they thinking? I but didn't know that. Did you know that actually in Ark of Nephishtim you can activate the original anime intro by inputting some code or holding something down? Yep. forget what it was. I'm, well, I, I know you know Tom. <laughs> I was telling Steven. No, I had no idea. So yeah, I love that intro, actually. I'm gonna, definitely going to check out VM Japan, but I don't want to hold this up because we got more music coming. So, Tom, what do we got next? I'm going to just let the, the next two themes play, and uh, I'm going to see if anybody listening can actually guess where they're from, because this is where I go, like, ultra hipster here. These are, like, probably two of the most obscure Falcons games I could possibly have picked, but I'm, I'm just curious to see what you guys think. Yeah, I've I've heard of Vantage Master, but these two games, I've only heard of one of them because Tom has mentioned it before. The other one, I honestly have never heard of ever. So we have main theme from a mystery game and Woshi Aishen from another mystery game.
Mystery game number one, that song, the main theme, was dramatic and exciting, and I liked it, and reminded me a lot of, well, since it's a main theme, it reminded me of some kind of, like, a really epic JRPG intro, but it's not really that kind of game, is it, Tom? Kind of is, but it it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to explain this game. I don't actually know it that well, as I've only just sort of popped it in to check it out a little bit after I bought it, but yeah, the game is called Dinne. R-I-N-N-E, which is actually, uh, it, it, it's a word which means like the cycle of death and rebirth. I think part of Buddhism? I should have looked that up before the show. But yeah, it's uh, another word for it. It's usually translated as samsara, which you might recognize yes. from like the East Origin soundtrack listing. Samsara and Paramnesia, right, which is yep. still probably the most kick-ass track name Falcom's ever come up with. Yes. But uh, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the game, um, it's actually a perfect name for the game, too, because uh, the premise of it is that you are this disembodied spirit, and there's like this five-way war going on in this weird post-apocalyptic world, and you are just sort of possessing the bodies of the dead and reanimating them to fiddle around with the war and sort of participate in various events that are going on and learn more about the world around you. And yeah, it's... A game that I would not be at all surprised if no one listening has heard of at all, unless you heard about it from me. Yeah, that's how I heard about it. So <laughs> now a, they have. So this is a it's a PC game, and it runs on something that looks kind of similar to the Infinity Engine. Screenshots of it reminded me a lot of Baldur's Gate, actually. It, really? It does have a look to it, yeah. Yeah. It, it's totally different from any other Falcom game, and the reason for that is because it's a remake of a non-Falcom game 
that Falcom was like, I guess, uh, sort of, well, there was a game in the late 80s from a Japanese PC developer called Both Tech, and the game was called Relics, and it was sort of one of their big hits back in the 80s in Japan. Very, It is sort of like a platformer with absolutely no backstory. You just kind of were thrown right into it. You had no idea what was going on and had to figure everything out from scratch. And uh, it intrigued a lot of Japanese gamers in the 80s. Um, Both Tech is actually still around. They no longer are like making original games, but they run a service called Project Egg, which uh, is designed to preserve Japanese PC gaming history by making old-school, like, 80s and 90s Japanese PC games playable under Windows. And, uh, yeah, offered through their service. You can kind of think of it like the Japanese version of, like, GOG. I was say, it sounds like good old games, only... Yeah, that's really cool. So, with... So, was I was, you know, growing up, I always had the impression that, oh, PC games aren't as popular in Japan. I, I guess that's really not the case at all is it like is is the tradition there as strong as it might you know is it it seems to be here actually pc games in the 80s were huge in japan the uh pc 88 msx pc 98 and msx2 computers were as big as like the nes over there the famicom and there's a ton of like great old japanese pc games from that era including a lot of falcom's own that's how they became famous was through uh games like Dragon Slayer and Xanadu back in the 80s. In fact, I think, I mean, I don't know if it's still true, but supposedly, at least as of a few years ago, the original Xanadu from 1985 remained the best-selling Japanese-developed PC game in history. So, really? Yeah. See, but, I, had, uh, I had heard of the MSX and stuff, but me being, you know, I, I wasn't as well-informed on it, so I thought they were consoles. So that's oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, no, it's, uh, there, there definitely is a pretty rich history of PC games in Japan that just kind of died off around the 90s, um, which is why like Falcom slowly started moving to consoles in the 2000s. But yeah, so Both Tech actually did get a hold of a lot of Falcom's older games and has them available on Project Egg to download and play and stuff. And I guess in return for that, Falcom remade Both Tech's own game, Relics, and released it as Rinne. But... There must have been some sort of weird licensing thing, like maybe only Both Tech is allowed to distribute it or talk about it, because there is not even a single mention of the game on Falcom's website. There's no soundtrack for it. it it's as if it doesn't even exist. When I first got the game in the mail I, and started installing it, I almost felt like I was ro- watching the video from The Ring. Like, you know, <laughs> I was going to die in seven days or something. It was just so, like, creepy to have this, like, game that barely exists. But, well... uh... Did you buy it from a hunched-over person in rags on a street corner for, like, two pieces of starfruit and a piece of pocket lint or something? Because if so, then you might be in trouble. He sold yeah, it to you no, with I, a smile and a warning. I, I very well may have, because I got it from a Yahoo Japan auction. So it could have been from a Yahoo Japan auction run by, like, a hunched-over street beggar or something. <laughs> I mean, it's you likely. Know. You better be careful. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the game... Never did get a soundtrack release, but a version of the main theme, like an alternate version of it, was actually featured on the Xanadu Next soundtrack, oddly enough, because it was used in the teaser movie for Xanadu Next before the game was ever, like when the game was first announced. So some people who have heard the Xanadu Next soundtrack may have recognized that melody, but probably not. (laughs) That's still really cool, though. It is. And I hate to push us along, but I want to talk about the other track, too. Um, I'm the love goddess, Boshi Aishen. My first question is, 
is uh, Woshi Aishen is a Chinese statement, isn't it? Yeah, I I didn't even know that was the name of the song until I looked it up for the show, actually. <laughs> but, oh. Uh, yeah, I just sort of like was like, oh, this is a cool song. I didn't really pay attention to what it was called. Sometimes I, I'm kind of oblivious that way. But it's yeah, okay. the uh, song is entirely in Japanese except for the phrase Woshi Aishen, okay. which is sung in Chinese. But it's kind of interesting because, I mean, originally it was a vocal theme sung entirely in Chinese, and Falcom translated it to Japanese because, yeah, it is from a game called... Genso Sangokushi 2, also known as Fantasia Sango 2, which is one of several games that Falcom localized from another Asian region into Japanese for the Japanese market in the early 2000s. And they sort of marketed it in trailers as like another Legend of Heroes, which they also did with a Korean game they localized called Arcturus. Yeah, and looking at screenshots of it, it's got a pretty colorful look and... I know you said it's not quite the same, but the just looking at some of the battle screens, it looks a lot like Sora no Kiseki, sort of like semi-grid-based, semi-ATB. It's it's actually more ATB than anything. I don't think it has any grid-based elements to it, but it kind of looks that way because it takes ATB to like a ridiculous level where a lot of the attacks take a good 5 to 10 seconds to execute. And while those attacks are being executed, you can keep on issuing commands and doing other attacks. And you can have, like, your whole party attacking at once if you want. It, like, doesn't really pay any attention to, you know, waiting for one person to be finished. So it's kind of... It can get pretty uh, busy on the screen when you're playing it. And also the singer for the song is Kanako Kotera. And she does a lot of other music for Falcom games. Like, I recognize her as the singer for Silver Will or Jin no Ishii. Or, sorry, Gin no Ishii, right? The Shoura no Kiseki FC theme song? Or is that SC, technically? That is technically SC theme song. But she also did FC ending theme. And she did, uh, basically, she's done all of the Kiseki series vocal themes. Like, every one of them, I think. Yeah. Um, And And then she did uh, Rush Out for E7. And she did... Uh, oh, I like that song. I know that yeah, one. And she, <laughs> and she did the uh, opening theme for Tsvai 2, which is also a really good song, Bokura no Mirai. And she's, she's done a whole bunch of stuff. She's sort of like the go-to person for vocals in uh, modern Falcom music. And in a sense, that ties in, actually, since you said they marketed uh, Genso Sangokushi 2 as another Legend of Heroes game, it would make sense that with a similar theme song almost, you know, by the same singer that people would say, oh, yeah, it is kind of the same, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. a similar audience maybe, or cat, at least from the trailer. Yeah, I just, I, I just wanted to include that track because I thought it was really unusual. Um, both Genso Sangokushi 1 and 2 were released by Falcom in Japanese, and uh, both of them originally were sold in a limited edition box set with the soundtrack and an arrange album. And the Arrange album is only like 20 minutes long in both cases. It's not a full, you know, full Arrange album or anything. But it still is 20 minutes of music composed by a Chinese developer and arranged by Sound Team JDK, which is something that you really don't hear very often. No, that's that's really cool. Yeah, I think they did an amazing job. Like, I I really, really like... I mean, I like the original Genso Sangokshi soundtrack as well. It sounds very traditional Chinese. Um... But yeah, Falcom's version sounds very Falcom. Like they did a really nice job of keeping that traditional Chinese element in a lot of the instrumental tracks and sort of Falcomizing them. So to move us along to our next couple of tracks, we have two songs from a game with one of the most misleading titles I've ever heard. Yeah, it's, totally. It's, it's Dinosaur awesome Resurrection, title. a game that features absolutely no dinosaurs, but probably <laughs> Resurrection. Hey, it doesn't I, even 
Yeah, I don't think it even really features Resurrection. It's just a completely misleading title. They were just like, we love dinosaurs and Resurrection. Go. (laughs) Game title is full of it. So we're going to listen to two tracks from that. Uh, The first one is Pay On To The Spirits, and the second one is Into The Castle. Roar. Into The Castle we go with dinosaurs. No, no dinosaurs.
track from the same game, but with a very different sound. Pan to the Spirits had a little bit more of a melancholy feel for sure. And the game itself is kind of a weird wizardry-esque sort of game. I don't really know anything about it, though. So, Tom, you want to go ahead? Dinosaur Resurrection is actually a game that I, uh, I, I've kind of championed for a while. Because I, I picked it up on a whim because I, I was basically being a Falcom hipster. I'm like, here's a Falcom game I haven't heard of. Let me try it. So I bought it and I installed it. And I got totally addicted to it for a while. But then my hard drive crashed and I lost my save data. So I never did actually finish it. I got so close, but I never actually finished it. But it is it is an awesome, awesome game. Probably my favorite first-person dungeon crawler of all time, to be honest. It's got kind of a postmodern surrealist horror theme to it. It's very strange that way. Like, it's deathly serious. There's not a single moment of, like, humor in the game. It's all, like, you know, people are dying. We need to, we need to continue onward. And it has this weird, creepy vibe to it throughout. All these things happen that you just don't see coming. Like, there's one point where you're just going through a dungeon, and you encounter this woman, and she's like, oh, help me, help me, please. And you you get near her, and then she, like, kisses you, and you get this mark of a spider on you, and then she turns into a spider. And then she's like, if you try to defy us, you will turn into a spider and die. And then she blinds one of your characters and then leaves. And it's like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and, and all no of that sounds them. horrifying. <laughs> it's, it, it all just comes out of nowhere, too. And there's like, uh, uh, there's one town in the game. And if you talk to the mayor of the town at one point, mention to him, you're like, why, why are there no children in this town? It seems kind of weird. And then the mayor just laughs and he's like, children? We have no need for children here. It, this town hmm. exists solely for your sake. These people exist only to sell things to you and help you in your quest. There's no reason to have children. And it's just like, whoa, that is creepy. That is whoa. super creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds but like yeah, a really it's... cool atmosphere, though. Like that, Derek's going to hate me for bringing this up, but that actually reminds me a lot of the atmosphere in Dark Souls being very like, there's not a moment of humor in that game. And that's why I think it's overwhelming for a lot of people because it's just, there's no light ever in that game. It's just yeah. intensity, intensity, darkness, horrible things happen. People betray you for no reason. And, so that that that's the kind of the vibe I got from it. Hey, yeah, I like Silent Hill. There's not the only funny thing in Silent Hill is when Heather says, "I'm going to Silent Hill," and you're like, "That's <laughs> you're like, no, don't do it." <laughs> but no, it's uh, it's definitely a great game. It plays very much like a standard wizardry game, although with a preset party of actual characters, not oh, okay. characters you create. And the battles are also like lightning fast, so it has kind of that going for it as well. Dinosaur Resurrection is a remake, correct, of the original dinosaur. Yeah, and it's actually, that's one of the things that I love most about it is, uh, like, the original came out in 1989, and the story, as far as I'm aware from what I've seen of videos, is completely untouched. Like, it's exactly the same story, exactly the same dialogue as before. And for 89, that was like, I, I can't even imagine playing a game this creepy and, like, getting under your skin like the writing is exceptional in this game yeah that's that was that that's a game that came out at the same time as i'm garland i will knock you all down <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah it's it's like amazing to me it's like damn falcom had some really really good writers back in the 80s holy crap that sounds really but, cool see this is what's terrible about doing this episode though is i'm gonna want to go play all this stuff and then be mad that i only have time to play like one yeah, if, if I can actually say one more thing about Dinosaur Resurrection, though. Go right one ahead. thing that I think is uh, a really kind of neat about it that totally changes the dynamic from other wizardry-style games is uh, combat. Like, 
the uh, encounter rate. It's still random battles, like wizardry-style games tend to be, but the encounter rate varies depending on how exposed you are. So if you're, like, in the middle of a room where you can move in all four directions, you're probably going to get into a battle on your very next step. But if you're hugging the wall, your encounter rate will go down. If you're walking through a corridor, it goes down further. And if you get to a dead-end room or something, it's practically non-existent. And it actually makes dead ends something that you kind of look for in the game, because you also have a resting system, where you can uh, take a turn to rest and recover a little bit of HP and MP, but you have the chance of getting into a random battle each time you do it. So if you find a dead end along the way, you can kind of like hole up in that dead end for a little bit and rest until you're fully recovered, and then continue on. Actually remarkably realistic and pretty cool. I've never yeah. heard of a system like that in a dungeon crawler before. Say, I'm a really big fan of dungeon crawlers, and that, like, the, the pace of the battles, like, that sounds like it has a lot of unique wrinkles that again, make you want to try it. I mean, the, if you played if you played Elmenage, you'll probably like that, right? Well, Elmenage like, wasn't a bad game. It was just the localization was abhorrent. But it to talk a little bit about the music there, too, like, there's that, the, in the second track, in Into the Castle, Tom, you were saying that it's kind of like that game's version of the... What was the what was the tower? Tower called? of the Shadow of Death. The tower from that's from yeah. Ease One. Yeah, the reason I mention that is because like uh, I think it was just sort of Falcom's thing at the time because like in East One the Tower of Darm is like half the game of East One and right, yeah. uh, Arcadia Castle in Dinosaur Resurrection is kind of the same way where the game opens in the town and the forest and there's like a temple that you explore but once you get inside Arcadia Castle that's like over half the game. And Into the Castle is the first track that greets you when you first enter Arcadia Castle. So it always kind of seems like a parallel to Tower of the Shadow of Death for me. What I really liked about it is that it kind of, it gave me, I was telling you, it gave me like a Fantasy Star vibe for some reason, just because of how heavy the bass was in it. It just gave me this like, I mean, obviously the, it's Into the Castle, but it had like a Here We Go kind of like. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's, that, I, I don't know if you can really even say that any track from Dinosaur Resurrection is a fan favorite since, like, not many people have heard this music. But uh, I would say, of the people I know who have, Into the Castle tends to be one of their favorite tracks. Well, if it means anything, I liked it better of the two we heard. So, for our next two tracks, we have something from one of Falcom's... I wouldn't necessarily say it's a long-running series, but it's a series that has gotten quite a few uh, entries. Uh, It's from Brandish 4... And it is a track really without a name. Uh, Tom has it listed here as V2T0DA. Did you say, and that's actually just like from the game itself, right? Yeah, because there actually was never a soundtrack released for Brandish 4. There is a like Brandish VT MIDI collection album out there that has track names. So like if I were to listen to the Brandish VT MIDI collection and match this track to like the MIDI version of it, I would be able to give you a name, but unfortunately I don't have that accessible to me right now, mm-hmm. so I can't really do that. So that's a, it's a song from Brandish 4, kind of a game that looks like, a bit like Landstalker. It's an interesting sort of dungeon crawler game. And then we have a track from, is it Sorcerian? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I guess or, so. Sorcerian, Sorcerian, Sor- I don't Sor- think it matters. Yeah, Sorcerian Forever, one of the games in the Sorcerian series. This is Lake in the Depths of the Mine, so we're going to listen to both of those and we'll be right back.
the Brandish Four track, I the first thing I, I noticed when I was listening to it, and as it went on and on, that really reminds me of like a Wild Arms two or three dungeon theme, like that that really heavy backing bass, like, and then like the overhead synth or overhead the ah. synth overlapping it. Oh man, it's just. I was literally like, I was like, this sounds so much like something I heard from Wild Arms, but it was a really cool track too. I love like it. It had like a, I don't know, it reminds me of like the earlier Falcom or the earlier Yeez games I've played, where it's like it has that kind of like really high energy kind of like it's pushing you forward and you know you're moving real quick because the the, the Yeez games I've played are all super super fast paced, so it it seems like it would fit with even like that sort of thing. So what kind of game is Brandish for exactly, or the whole Brandish series, I guess. <laughs> Totally not that kind of game, which is why it's kind of funny, yeah. No, it's, it's kind of funny that that is what the soundtrack is like, because the other Brandish games typically have, uh, either for, like, boss battles, they've got the typical Falcom rock sound, or they just have really uh, moody music, usually, because they're, honestly, like, a lot of what I told you for Dinosaur Resurrection also kind of applies to Brandish. It's very similar to that, where it's very creepy atmosphere. Generally, they're, like, dungeon crawlers that are not, first person, but, well, yeah, the Brandish series up until Brandish 4 was a dungeon crawler where you were always facing up, and if you turned left, the world would turn right, rather than you turning left. So it kind of played like a first person dungeon crawler, but in third person, and uh, confused a lot of people because back in the day, you know, they couldn't really animate everything turning, so they just kind of snapped everything into the new direction. If you weren't used to that, it was really confusing. When they remade it for PSP, they actually show the world turning, and it makes all the difference in the world. It's a, a really creepy dungeon crawler, though. Uh, really hard, too. The game pretty much actively tries to kill you. Like, <laughs> it, it really, like, it reminds me of, like, a Demon Souls, Dark Souls kind of thing, where it, it constantly has, like traps in the floor where you can just fall into them and lose a ton of health but you can buy iron balls to drop in front of you to check and see if there are traps so you have to like always keep that in mind there are booby traps everywhere where you'll step on a tile and like arrows will shoot at you or something and you have to quickly dodge out of the way and you have a a sleep mechanic like i was describing with uh dinosaur but brandish is a real-time game it doesn't have battle scenes so basically what happens is if you decide to go to sleep and an enemy attacks you in your sleep, it's instant death. So you have to try to make sure there are like no enemies around and sleep. And if there are enemies around, you have to kind of like sleep and then wake up a moment later and check and see and then be like, okay, I can go back to sleep. Wake up a moment later. That's horribly nerve-wracking. Terribly yeah. oppressive, yeah. Didn't uh, Brandish come out on SNES in North America? Yes, it did, and was not very well received because that whole world-turning thing really threw people off. Yeah. yeah. I remember renting it from a Hollywood video store, and the cover had this blonde sorceress. um, In the English version, her name is Alexis, and in Japanese, it's Della Delon. Yep. And um, I remember playing the game, and you're actually a, a warrior guy. And I was like, "What? did I get the wrong game? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, she's sort of your villain. Like, the story of Brandish is really light. Like, there's there's honestly very little dialogue. Like, the PSP version of Brandish is incredibly import-friendly, because a lot of the item names are in English, and there's almost no dialogue. So you can totally play the game without being able to read Japanese, probably more easily than most other Falcom titles. 
But the story is basically Della Delon is accusing you of killing her master, so she's trying to kill you, but accidentally opens a giant hole in the ground, and you both fall in, and now you're just trying to climb your way out. And along the way, you keep encountering one another and getting into, like, fights with one another. Kind of like if Esos and Telgana, if Chester kicked you into that pit and then tripped and fell down himself. Jumped in after you, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. But yeah, actually, the PSP version adds uh, Della Della in mode, where you actually get to play as Della, and you can see the story from her perspective. Oh, that's interesting. Does she play like? Does she play differently from the the main character? Yeah, she's more magic based. Oh, cool. So yeah, and and wears a lot less clothing because they really really overdid it with Brandish in that sense. I'm actually looking at the box art for the PSP version, and yeah, and if you look at some of the old art for Brandish, this actually came up on the Exceed forums recently, like. Some of the old school art for the series, like the character proportions are utterly bizarre. Like they have like the weirdest hips you'll ever see. I, I don't know what they were doing exactly, but <laughs> like if you look at some of the official art, though, it's among Falcom's most gorgeous, I think, along with Sorcerian, which I guess brings us back to the two tracks. Yeah, and speaking of Sorcerian, so we just heard uh, Lake in the Depths of the Mine, and this is a game that I know it's not the same, but to me it looks kind of like Magic Sword, although you control four characters at the same time, correct? Yeah, the idea, the Sorcerian series, Falcom totally needs to remake it at some point because it would totally work in the modern day, like DLC expansion structure, because that's basically what they did back in the day. They released like all of these expanded scenarios where you could like get Pyramid Sorcerian and play like these Egyptian-themed stages or get Sengoku Sorcerian and play these like traditional Japanese, uh, like, samurai-era-style stages. Oh, I see. They had uh, expansion packs that gave you, like, additional spells and stuff, too. Uh, Very ahead of its time in that sense, especially for, like, late 80s, early 90s. You didn't really see that very often. But yeah, the game itself is really cool. It's basically a side-scrolling platformer where you control four characters at once, all of which you can actually create, or you can use, like, the uh, default characters. And it has this thing where you have one button for attack, one button for magic, and if you hold down either button, every available party member who can attack will attack you, and or every available party member who uh, can use magic will use magic. And yeah, if you have like four mages in your party and you just hold down that button, they all have different spells, the screen just fills with particle effects. It's kind of ridiculous, but kind of awesome. Explosive uh, walking death train kind of thing? That's yeah. 100% up my alley. What's really cool, though, and was one of the big disappointments for me when uh, Sorcerian Online was created in Japan, is that your characters, you create them in a variety of, you know, different races and stuff, and they each have, like, you know, they each start around age, like, 15 to 25, somewhere in that vicinity, and then if you want to learn new spells or, like, expand your stats, you can train in town between missions, and training for different spells and stuff takes a certain number of years, and your characters actually age, and their sprites show them aging. Um, Oh, wow. And as they reach a certain peak age, like, their stats will naturally start to go down with each remaining year, because they're getting old, basically. And then eventually, the character will actually die, and a new character will be created who is supposed to represent that character's, like, son or daughter, and will inherit some, but not all, of the stats and abilities from the parent. Oh, that sounds awesome. That's really cool, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, that that has so much potential for, like, a really great MMORPG system. That actually, it sounds like a Rogue Legacy, actually. I I was thinking that it sounds a little bit like that. 
I'm not too familiar with that one, actually. It's like a sort of a randomly generated action platformer game. It was, wasn't it Kickstarted and then it came out on Steam recently? I don't remember if it was Kickstarted. But... I don't know if it was Kickstarted, but it's, it's, it's a new indie game that came out on Steam that's like, it's set up sort of like, it looks kind of like Sorcerian or like a sort of like the post-Symphony of the Night Castlevanias, but it's a roguelite. It's, it's, they call it a roguelite. So like your character dies and then you take control of their offspring and their offspring inherits some of their statistics and their legacy, but also has their own like, you know, you can get somebody who's like colorblind or somebody who has vertigo, so they see everything oh, upside wow. down. It, it's it's a great concept, and I've been dying to get it. But it it sounds a lot like that. That is kind of neat, actually. I I am not familiar with that, but I'll have to look into that. Hey, we taught but, you yeah. something. Yeah, very cool. Almost. Thank you. But uh, no, I, I always thought that was a really great idea. And then when Falcom announced that there was going to be a Sorcerian online, I was like, oh wow, that would make for a really interesting MMO system where you know you instead of creating a character you create like a family line and you play as that family line and you know as you train you get older and you can have it work in real time or maybe like one day equals one year or something and it just seemed like it would be such a great concept for an mmo but no sorcerian online is just a wow clone it's like that's kind of disappointing there's so oh, much that potential is... there yeah that's uh, i feel like a lot of times potential gets squandered in the mmo space because it's like you know unless we're a wow clone it's incredibly difficult to sell our game but then it's like but if you're not a wow if, if you're a wow clone it's like well why am i not just playing world of warcraft but, unless um... you're final fantasy 14 which we like and we're talking about a lot <laughs> but um so as for the actual music very 90s i like the percussion in it it i can't think of a lot of adjectives i'm, I'm more interested in the history than i am the music of this particular game i mean i think yeah. the, the history in, in this case i think this is stuff that i mean again uh, maybe i'm just speaking for myself here but the vast majority of people probably don't get exposed to so it's interesting to get the history behind it i i totally agree like i i love these old games and uh, it's always fun discovering a lot of them uh, and honestly the game is a little bit more interesting than the music in this particular case sorcerian forever is the last original scenario that falcom created for sorcerian it was like i guess late 90s or early 2000s and it contained five missions that were unique and hadn't been created prior to that. Uh, no soundtrack was ever released, but it is a CD-based game, and all of the music is CD audio, so you can just pop the game disc into your CD player and listen to it. And sadly, most of it isn't really all that great. Like, it's it's a very mixed bag as far as Falcom soundtracks go, but there are, like, three or four standout tracks, and Lake in the Depths of the Mine is probably my favorite of the bunch. It's actually used for the very first scenario, and... Uh, really kind of gets you into it. So I, I really enjoyed that one. Absolutely. So to move on, the next game we're going to talk about is one that I've actually played. This yeah. is uh, Xanadu Next is one of, uh, is it the most recent Xanadu game they've made? That is the most recent Xanadu game, yes. Okay, but it's still not super recent. It's a, it's a PC game, and it's sort of a dungeon crawler kind of game, and it's got kind of, it's got a fairly heavy narrative, doesn't it? I mean, not super heavy, but more than you might expect for a dungeon crawler. Um, I, I mean... It, I guess you can kind of play it as a dungeon crawler. It kind of reminds me more of like a slower ease kind of. So I, I see it more like a more traditional JRPG in that sense. And for a more traditional JRPG, the narrative is a little light, but still really intriguing. Like it, it never gets in the way of the exploration, which I think is the primary goal of the game. Very so interestingly, guess, I'm actually looking at it, and apparently Xanadu Next was released on the N-Gage. Yeah. I I would not have expected that because I didn't think anything released on the engage. I I actually bought 
a used N-Gage to play Xanadu Next on it, and it was so not worth it. Really? It is not a very good port of Xanadu Next at all. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, it, it, like, the N-Gage just can't handle the awesome, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was kind of sad. I, I wound up posting a panel on Falcom Games at uh, the Otakon Anime Convention one year, mm. and I had gotten a bunch of prizes to give away to people and i had like a at the very end the last two prizes were both hidden inside boxes one was like a really nice prize and the other was the engage with xanadu next oh no yeah people just like picked which one they wanted and the one guy got the engage he apparently really liked it so that that worked out well yeah i mean i think as a collector's piece it's probably really cool to have yeah so from xanadu next we're going to listen to the opening harlech and evildoer the battle theme
do next definitely goes through some pretty dramatic change. The first minute or so is very laid back, low key. Well, not laid back, but it's it's very quiet. And then at about a minute in, it gets this sort of vaguely Near Eastern influence in the instrumentation. And as it builds up, it's got that chorus that makes it super dramatic. And it's a cool track. I like it. The, uh, the melody that you hear repeated throughout that and throughout the soundtrack in general, actually, comes from the very first Xanadu game in 1985. It literally was the soundtrack to Xanadu, since, you know, in 85, having one song was all you really needed. And uh, they just kind of sped it up for battle scenes, but otherwise it was the exact same song. And it's kind of a nice throwback to the series history that it's called La Valse pour Xanadu, which I'm probably mispronouncing horribly, since it's like French, and I don't know how to speak that at all. But it's like the waltz for Xanadu. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah I uh, that song, I just... the. I really dug the melody, which I guess, you know, it's got origins, or rather, it's got origins in the older songs, so I think that's, a lot of older games tend to have, like, more memorable melodies, because that was, you know, that was all you had, but yeah, that that definitely stuck out to me, and it had, like, a, I wrote in my notes, I wrote that it had a hollow sound, but I I don't know if that really conveys how I feel about it appropriately, but it had a really distinct, I guess, vibe to it, and I, I, I really dug it. Yeah, and then after that we heard Harlick, and that's actually the town theme. I recognized that immediately from when I had played the game, and it starts with that guitar strum that makes you immediately think, is this is this game like Diablo? <laughs> but it, it has its own unique melody that, that picks up really quickly, and it's got flute, and I think it's a very, very memorable theme. And I think, Tom, did you say people tend to remember that song? I mean, I, I don't think you can play the game and not remember it, because as you said, you hear it so much when you're playing the game, because it is sort of your hub town. It's where you end up most of the time when you're adventuring. Like, all roads sort of lead back to Harlech. Arguably more interesting than Tristram. Ooh, zing, I went there. Oh, zing. And finally, we listened to Evildoer, and I said it was the battle theme, but it's actually the final battle theme, correct? Yes. And that's got the more traditional, what you might call the the Falcom sound, if you've listened to other Falcom music, say, from East Games. It's got the heavy rock with guitar. That song yeah. was awesome. We were, we, I, I told you guys while we were listening to it, we were having a conversation, and I was headbanging because that song is just so... Ugh, it makes you want to beat the entire game just to fight the last boss and hear that song. Like, the wailing on the guitar at the end, it's... Ugh. Yeah, that is that is definitely a fan favorite. Actually, if you search for uh, Xanadu Next Evildoer on YouTube, there's like amazing fan covers of that song and fan arrangements. And uh, yeah, I'd I'd love to hear a like Falcom do something else with it as well on like a future range album or something because it is it is a pretty amazing track. But I also think in general the Xanadu Next soundtrack, like I love the game. It's probably arguably my favorite Falcom game. Um, and it also has one of my favorite Falcom soundtracks. I just think it's so it gets you so in the right mood for the game that you're about to play, and yet it's also completely listenable on its own. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of... I know that a lot of Falcom songs are similar to this, but it reminded me a little bit of The Strongest Foe from Esos and Felgana. Just, I guess, a lot of... You could say that about a lot of Falcom Final Boss themes, that it's like, rock guitar! But yeah, they do inject a melody into it well, though. Like it has just that that hook in it, that do 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 do. Just that simplicity yeah. is key. And the the game itself, yeah, it, I would recommend giving it a try for sure. Like I said, it's it's one of the I guess you could say less obscure games that we're talking about on the podcast today. But I I, th- I thought the game was actually pretty accessible even in Japanese. It's got a lot of text, but it's fun. Give it a go. It's not as fast paced as East, but I would definitely advise checking it out. Yeah, it's uh. If, if anyone, I mean, if you've played E7 too, it has the same basic weapon system as E7, where when you get a new weapon, 
and you equip it, you gain a new ability that is attached to that weapon. And as you keep using the weapon and using that ability, you will eventually learn it to the point where you can use it even without the weapon equipped. And uh, that got its start in Xanadu Next. I thought it was a really you know clever uh, clever way to make every new weapon you get feel really special because you're like, ooh, what does this one do? And yeah, you just you want to play around with it and see and it's I don't know I'd, I just love the general structure of Xanadu Next it feels like a 3D Metroidvania done right to me See, it like, really makes you want to explore it sounds like something that would really hook me because again I really like the idea too that you get a weapon it makes you want to hunt everything down because everything you never know what it's going to have on it for an ability so it's like oh so, you know it could be a total game changer and that's I, I, I made this comparison before but it's kind of like Final Fantasy 9 that was a sim- similar thing for me where you know you want to get everything because everything could give you some crazy ability. The other, uh, the other recent thing, like I, this is totally going to sound like I'm hawking our wares here, but oh, in actuality, yeah, in actuality, though, I, I genuinely thought when I first played uh, Pandora's Tower on the Wii, in order to you know check it out for because we were about to start you know working on it, my first thought was, man, this is a lot like Xanadu Next. Like, I actually think Pandora's Tower has that same sort of feel to it, even in as much as uh, a lot of Xanadu Next's backstory is told through uh, stone tablets and memorandums that you find lying around, which are written in an ancient language, and you have to take them back to your scholar friend, Char, and have her translate them for you, which I think takes 20 minutes real time, after which point you can read them and learn about the backstory of the world and all that stuff. And in Pandora's Tower, it's the same thing. You find these scraps of paper, and some of them you have to take back and have Elena translate for you. And uh, I thought it was really interesting. Like, it has that same sort of uh, exploration vibe. It has that same sort of atmosphere to it. Yeah, I and, definitely uh, agree about the atmosphere, that kind of vaguely gothic, dark atmosphere. Yeah, and that's why I'd, I really enjoyed Pandora's Tower. I was really glad that we were working on it, and I'm hoping that we also get to work on Xanadu next at some point, because that would, that would pretty much kick ass. I would love that. I'd buy that in a heartbeat. I hope you're not sore about my Pandora's Tower review, Tom. Uh, not, not too much. You'll, you'll <laughs> no, well, I really, I still well, enjoy we'll have a fist fight about it later. Yeah, sure, no problem. So we're going to move on to another niche game series. There's a, they're kind of a, they're like an action RPG, um, a lot more colorful than some of the more recent games we've been discussing, but this is from Zvi. We're actually going to play two tracks from the PSP remake of Zvi that was in made in 2008. Uh, we're going to play Floating Continent Argus main theme. Yeah, it's it's basically the overworld theme from Zvi. Okay. So we're going to play that, and we're going to play the final battle from Zvi. And then we're going to play a track from Zvi 2, and that is going to be Moon World Luna Mundus. So we're going to listen to those three, and we'll be back in just a moment.
So I, I got this is maybe this is off base or, or something, but I was sitting there the whole time we were listening to Floating Continent Argus. I was trying to place what it reminded me of. It reminds me of the map theme from the uh, from Sweden in two. I don't know. I just it, I have this this image in my mind when I hear it of like uh, like sprite based two D RPG. The camera pans out because you're walking. And there's like layered clouds on top, and just it sounds like a world map. It's just gorgeous, gorgeous map theme song. I love that. Very gentle, especially compared to the songs we just heard. Yeah, I actually, like, as I think I mentioned, it is the overworld theme from Swy, and the overworld in Swy looks a lot like Zeal from Chrono Trigger. It's it's floating continents. Ooh. Um, both Floating islands! Yeah, both <laughs> Swy games, in fact, are all about floating islands. I, I always had this theory um, that Swy games have a lot in common with Gurumin, and I always had a theory that, like, Swy took place on the floating continents, and then below them on the ground was Gudumin taking place. I don't know. It's probably just a dumb theory on my part, but I, I swear, like they feel like they're part of the same series. To no, me. I like that. And then, and we're actually going to be playing a track from Gudumin shortly. But you mentioned that Gudumin is running off of what either is or seems like this Vi Two engine, right? Well, uh, vice the other versa, way right? Around, yeah. Oh, the other way Swy around. 2, sorry. Yeah, Swy Two is. I believe running off of the Gudamin engine. If not, it's really, really similar. Um, and yeah, it's a uh, it's a super duper fun game. It's kind of interesting though because I think the original Zwei, super fun game, but not one of Falcom's best. However, its soundtrack is freaking gorgeous. Like it is an amazing, amazing soundtrack overall. And they really did a nice job updating it for the PSP version as well. And then Zwei Two. I think the soundtrack is a little bit of a step down overall. It's still good, but it's nowhere near as good as the first Spy. Not one of Falcom's best soundtracks by any means, but the game itself is amazing. It's everything you could want in a sequel and more. It's like, it, it is definitely one of Falcom's top games, in my opinion. Nice. Uh, really, really fun. And both games are among Falcom's funniest as well with lots of ridiculous situations and lots of puns, actually. Well, maybe if we get a Ooh, Vi puns, 3, you say? Yeah, you know, lots of them. Even though Zvi 2 is, is kind of hilariously redundant. 2-2! Two, two. Maybe if there's a Zvi 3, they can that. combine wow. the good elements. Yeah, combine the good elements from yeah. each one and then make an awesome third one. And then be gracious enough to send it to you guys to translate for us. That would be <laughs> awesome. I, I, I hope eventually we get to do the Zvi games as well, because they both exist on PC, and uh, there's actually like a ton of extras on the PC version of the original Zvi. Like, you get like a, a little Tamagotchi-style like mini-game with uh, a pet that you can have as like a desktop app. You get like a desktop clock and all these other like little desktop apps included with the game. It's kind of weird. I love that kind, kind of interesting. Stuff. Yeah. Like my uh, I bought Final Fantasy 8 on PC way back when just to use the Chocobo the Pocket Station mini game. Oh, I remember that. I remember I, I tried to I was trying to convince my parents back then to import a Pocket Station for me, not knowing that it wouldn't work with the US Final Fantasy 8, but I desperately wanted to play that Chocobo game. <laughs> Were you my secret brother? Because I did the same thing. <laughs> I also tried to convince my parents that if they bought me the PC version of Final Fantasy VII, I could bring Eris back to life. And <laughs> was, was that just... like a persuasive argument for them? They were like, oh, well, in that case, we got to get it. <laughs> they were like, man, that Eris. I miss her. I miss her around the house. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. No, I just, uh, I was lying to myself, I guess. I don't know what the deal was. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I just always think of PC version of Final Fantasy VII as the eyebrow edition. They added the expressive eyebrows to the characters, which is the weirdest edition I've ever heard of for any game. Like, I don't know why. Everybody just looks surprised all the time. Yeah, it's, it's just so weird. It's like, I wonder why 
why they decided expressive eyebrows. What a strange thing. Uh, it's like how in the box for Final Fantasy X, one of the points is real-time facial expressions. And I have I have a friend who, like, constantly makes fun of that for everything. Like, he'll see a game and he'll be like, man, look at those real-time facial expressions. <laughs> just, <laughs> at like, least that makes more sense than just, like, you know, well, eyebrows. Everybody here <laughs> needs to have very bushy eyebrows. But yeah, the uh, the Tsui games though are, are a lot of fun, and uh, I think the big thing that they added to like the typical sort of action RPG formula is the experience system, which I still think is absolutely brilliant because it actively discourages grinding in a way that is just really like outside the box thinking. Basically, when you kill enemies in the Tsui games, you don't gain experience; they just drop food items. And if you eat food items, those are your main healing items, but they also give you a little bit of experience. However, if you hoard your food items instead, you can take them to the restaurant in town and exchange 10 of one food item for one of an exponentially better food item. So if you get, like, 10 pieces of cheese that give you 10 experience apiece, you might be able to exchange them for one pizza that gives you a thousand experience. And so you're encouraged to wait as long as possible to eat your food items that you get from enemies in order to get more experience later by hoarding them. And uh, the game is actually beatable even at level one. So it sort of encourages you to stay low level and try to like, you know, see how far you can get without leveling up at all. You know, that actually makes me think of that just reminds me of why I think Falcom is such an awesome developer because every game that we've mentioned today, they've done something really odd or interesting or different. And some of those ventures may have been less successful than others, but they're never afraid to try things like that. You know, like it's, it's not like other game companies sometimes where you expect sort of this rote procedural thing. Like it's going to be a Chemco RPG. Like it's, they're going to have turn-based battles and a real time experience or like a, an experience system and like you know you're going to find items in chests and like nothing is going to deviate from what you tend to expect from that kind of game whereas just about every Falcom game I can think of does something different. I was going to say and and yet they always seem to do that something different like within the foundation of something really familiar as well. So it's like you do know a lot of the experience you're about to get but there's always that one element that's kind of new and interesting that boosts everything else and makes it more interesting as well. Yeah, I was going to say, while we were while we were listening to the music, I was saying what really impresses me by Falcom, just based on what we're talking about today, is every game we've talked about, there's such breadth to it. Like, we've heard it in the music, too, because, you know, Falcom has that reputation for, you know, rocking Falcom, but we've, you know, I think we've already shown, too, that there's a great variety to the music, but also to the games themselves, and that's just, it's... It's really impressive to me, and it, it sort of, at least in my mind, speaks to me as to their longevity and why they're still here and so popular. Yeah, it is pretty amazing that they were founded in, like, 1981, and they're still around and still producing a ton of games. It's like, that's that's pretty long-lasting for a game company. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad they're still here. So we talked about the, the main theme for the Floating Continent, Argus, and... The final battle theme is also, it's still more gentle than, say, Evildoer from Xanadu Next. Uh, I got vibes of Suikoden from that with the accordion. And Tom, you said that the accordion is actually new to the PSP arrangement, right? That's right. The The original was more like, I, you also hear the bagpipes, the, like the synth bagpipes in the yeah. PSP version. But the original 
basically the the real draw of it was the synth bagpipes. It didn't have the accordion on top of that. I, I think the accordion edition is a really good one, though. I have a friend who absolutely positively hates it. So, of course, I play it for her as much as I possibly can. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. The, it just came to me. The word I was looking for was Celtic to describe the, the sort of yeah. vibe from that. Interestingly, it's... it's... Or rather, it's interesting to me that you suggested it sound, reminds you of Suikoden because as soon as I it got like about 15 seconds in, it really reminded me of like a Motoi Sakuraba track, like a little bit more maybe diverse than some of his prototypical stuff. But I, I got like a really big, strong, like, you know, his really dramatic battle themes from it, like with the crescendos and like the like the kind of swirling sounds. And I actually wanted to mention real quick with actually both Tsvai games and Gudumin and Nayuta no Kiseki, which is kind of like the honorary Tsvai 3, which we're going to get to later, I think. But yeah, all four of those games, like the final battles aren't exactly difficult, but they are final battles. Like, they are kick-ass final battles that you remember and you just get so pumped for. Like, Sly 1's final battle, you're, like, on a rock in space and you're shooting, like, prismatic energy that you never <laughs> had before that point in the game at, like, this mammoth foe that's, like, attacking you with lasers and stuff. And, you know, you're, you're like, orbiting the Earth in Sly 2 and then, like, Gudamin, you've got, like, this crazy, like, deep cavern that you're in. And it's, like, every final boss in that series and all the things tangentially related to them are, like, the final bosses you want in an action RPG. They're, like, the kind of things where you're, like... Damn, that's cool. Yeah, this is the climax like, of the experience, and it sounds yeah. wonderful. I love that sort of thing. I, I, I am a, I can be bought by high drama. Whatever, yeah. man. That's just like my typical Friday night flying in space, shooting lasers, whatever. Yep. And going back to Moon World Luna Mundus, thoughts on that one? I, as I said before, the Psy Two soundtrack isn't quite up to par with like the first games. Uh, Moon World Luna Mundus is one of the most uh, memorable tracks from it. Uh, one of, I, I guess, not one of the most memorable, but one of the more unique and memorable. A lot of the tracks in that sound very much more, like, archetypal of the type of area. It's like, Moon World Luna Mundus is a spacey sort of dungeon, so it has that spacey sort of sound. And, you know, it, it seems like all of the dungeons are a little bit more phoned in than usual with Falcom games, but they're still really good. And I think Moon World Luna Mundus was a good choice as well, because it, it also exemplifies the sense of humor in the game. Because it is literally the moon, the dungeon, and you get to it by climbing a giant staircase. Like, that's that's how you get to the moon in the game. That's Sweet. normally how I do it. So it's it's just kind of funny that, you know, a staircase to the moon. And that's one of the things I love with uh, Tsui 2 in general is it has the most ludicrous plot where if you actually step back and think about it, the stuff that's happening is so stupid, and yet it's explained and written so well that you're like, wow... That, uh, you know, you totally believe it. Like, your suspension of disbelief in that game is surprisingly high. Because there's another scene where, like, there's a, a fortress surrounded by a tornado. And you decide, hey, let's take our biplanes and use magic to cut a hole through the tornado so we can get into that <laughs> fortress. And you do exactly that. And it, it it's believable in the context of the game. But then when you step back, you're like, so I'm standing on the wing of a biplane casting magic at a tornado in order to cut a hole through it to get to the fortress inside. Hey, Sounds legit. That's a lot more effective than Adol's technique for breaching the vortex of Canaan, which was just getting sucked in and not, you know, almost drowning. Yeah. yeah, that's true, that's true. Moving on, we're going to listen to a couple of tracks from 
much, much, much older games. We're going to listen to a track called uh, Go Fight from a game called Star Trader. This is one of Falcom's really early games, and it's actually not an RPG. We're cheating. Shh, don't tell our boss. It's it's an interesting track, and following that, we're going to listen to uh, Guru Guru Tonight from Guruman, and there's a lot of Guru happening in that. Guru Guru is a Japanese automatopoeia for, like, twirling around, right? Correct. So. And there's there's uh, fun lyrics in that song that uh, I... I feel compelled to mention after we listen to it so okay and you well we're gonna make you sing all the lyrics afterwards you know that, right? okay it'll be it's okay afterwards and i'll sing something from rhapsody a musical adventure and it'll be fine yeah anyway so and following that we're gonna listen to in the memory it's from east one and this is the psg version from the falcom special box 89 plus mix and that that last one comes with uh, sort of a a reason for it being on here so uh, i'll i'll go into that as well so there's a lot of adjectives happening in that arrangement so we're going to hear those three rubber band back and share our thoughts
I guess we had a temporary 80s night there. Not that Gudumin is an 80s game, it's actually a recent PSP game, but all three of those songs had an incredibly 80s vibe. So we'll start with Go Fight. Even though it's not an RPG, like we said, it is still a song from an obscure Falcom game, and that was absolutely ridiculous the, in a good way. The over-the-top vocals are very, like, hair metal. Yeah. yeah. Now, you, you can't really mention Obscure Falcom and not talk about Star Trader, because it's like, not only is it a Falcom game that most people haven't really heard of, it's also a shmup. So it's, like, totally really weird for Falcom. Uh, I have not played it. I do own it, but it was only ever released on, like, PC-88 and PC-98, so I can't really play it. I mean, I guess I could get an emulator, but then I'd also need, like, a floppy disk drive or something, so... <laughs> Yeah, it, it's like, yeah. I, I, I love that you say it's a shoot-em-up, but it's called Star Trader, which is just... Well, it, it does have, like, uh, story scenes, like, cut scenes between each stage and tells a story about, like, basically a, a Star Trader, like, someone who's just, like, going through and, like, trading stuff, I guess. And the, the scenes are kind of, like, almost like a Fantasy Star 4 old anime yeah. style, or, you know, or, like, the older East, the older versions of the East games with that very... The pixel art of anime stills. Yeah, it's got like the manga manga frame style to it, very much so. I'm kind of curious because I've heard conflicting opinions about Star Trader. Like some people are saying it's not really very good as a shmup, but the story's really good. And then other people are like, yeah, the story doesn't matter, but the shmup part's pretty decent. So it's like I don't know what to believe. It could be both. You never know. Yeah. If you were if you were to go yard sale and pick out an old computer, didn't you say you have an old one, but it doesn't have a disk drive or a floppy drive? Yeah, I'd, I would need to get, like, a literally, like, five and a quarter inch floppy drive. Like, the actual floppy. Oh, floppy those. Discs. Yeah. And it's it's kind of funny, because I bought Star Trader with, like, it, it came with a mouse pad originally, like a vinyl mouse pad. And, you know, this was a vinyl mouse pad produced in, like, the early 90s. So as soon as I opened up that box, the smell of that mouse pad was, like, overpowering. Oh. I tried to, like, air it out for, like, weeks. <laughs> outside it, that smell just would not go away it started to become like a joke i would bring it into work and like leave it on people's desks like hidden be like, oh god what is that smell and yeah eventually i i gave that away as part of the uh, booby prize pack at the falcom panel i hosted along with the engage <laughs> and, and now that person's house smells like yeah, a vinyl mouse so, pad forever yeah, it wasn't like really you... that great of a mouse pad either but you know it, it does kind of feel a little wrong to i guess break up the set and not you know have the mouse pad anymore but i really didn't want the mouse pad anymore so, so now i can like it. play his play his engage while slowly dying of asphyxiation or something. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> dark so then we listen to guru guru tonight from gudumin by <laughs> great segue <laughs> by an an artist as tom pointed out with the completely ridiculous name of icarus watanabe yeah i this dude is uh he's actually sung live falcom's in-house JDK band actually does perform live fairly often, and uh, a lot of times when they have male vocals, it'll be Icarus Watanabe who's doing the singing, and he is a weird dude. Like, he almost always shows up wearing, uh, like, a red and black striped jumpsuit and, like, a, a hat with like aluminum foil ram horns attached to it and he like jumps around on stage and basically just acts very 80s it's kind of funny it sounds like an indispensable part of the stage show i i i, I think so i, I want to see it live one day <laughs> say uh, is it available on youtube like i'm sure once sh- i have to see it yeah i i don't know if 
he actually ever performed that song live, actually, but I know he's performed the E6 vocal tracks in some of Falcom's live shows. I'm Here For You and Mighty Obstacle, The Wind of ah, Zenith. yes, I like yeah. Mighty Obstacle. Yeah, if you search for those on YouTube, I'm sure you'll see uh, footage of Icarus Watanabe performing them. It's, it's worth seeing. He doesn't actually sing them as well as uh, on the studio albums, though, unfortunately. I, I think Guru Guru Tonight is his best actual vocals. And I, I was mentioning before, like, the lyrics to Guru Guru Tonight are uh, pretty hilarious because the chorus is in English. You can make it out if you listen to it again. And it's basically saying like, open heart, Guru Guru. Open head, Guru Guru. Open legs, Guru Guru. (laughs) And like, when I I read that those are the lyrics, I was like, wow, I I don't think that means what you think it means. (laughs) They just want you to have a good time dancing. I I guess so. Dirty mind. Well, I mean, Guru Guru is like spinning and drilling. And the, the game is about drills, so, you know. It's like Drill Dozer, but Japanese. Well, yeah. more Japanese. Way <laughs> more a, Japanese. Super fun game, though. It actually did originate as a PC game in Japan and was ported to the PSP and was actually Falcom's first PSP game that they released. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and considering that, they did a pretty damn good job for being their first attempt at making a PSP title. And yeah, it's a, a really super fun game. Mastiff brought it to the U.S. It's on PSN also, so it's easy to track down. Really fun game I would recommend. Mastiff did a great job with the English dub too, but I was uh, telling these guys while we were listening that uh, I actually think the Japanese voice actress for Perrin, I like her a little bit better because she's kind of like a proto-Daria almost. She's got that sort of monotone to her where I guess she's kind of not really goth because she's a little too cutesy to be goth, but at the same time, like everything she says is like with this very resigned tone that really makes her seem like more of a badass somehow. Sort of like endearingly apathetic. Completely yeah, like disaffected. Her- her, her big quote, which they use in the song, actually, you can hear her, her Japanese voice actress saying this during the song, is, uh, which is basically like, you know, guess there's no choice but to do it. Like, you know, guess, guess, gotta do what you gotta do, kind of thing. And she just says it with this resigned tone, but it's sort of a happy resigned tone. It's very hard to describe. It's like, well, alright, we gotta do it, might as well. Yep, gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And they made her a little bit more of a brat in English, which actually does work with her character, but it's sort of a different character at that point it's not quite the same so i just pulled it up on psn I, I might actually pick it up now this is something that's very easily accessible it's literally it's cheap too we talked about it and now it's in front of you yes yeah. and it is it is a really really uh fun game falcom does uh market it as an action rpg honestly i would say it's more a 3d platformer like in the vein of like mario 64 or something Oh. Um, it really has that sort of style to it, and it's a really good 3D platformer. It has really clever level designs, story that seems incredibly simplistic and childish, but actually has a lot of depth and nuance to it. And there are, like, little nods at the end to, I guess, they're kind of setting it up for a sequel, which never happened, unfortunately. But it's it's a really fun game, very unique as far as Falcom games go, definitely their cutest game of all time. And it's a lot of fun, definitely would recommend it. Well, excellent. The uh... Uh, the the last track we listened to, I I am I just have a soft spot in my heart for old school music, just because they're they're because of the limitations of hardware, you have just total focus on melody, and that was really clear in this one for me. Because again, I'm I'm not terribly familiar with all the different versions of Yee's one, but you guys said there's a lot of a lot of them. There are approximately one million. No exaggeration. Yeah, <laughs> No, there, there's really a lot. How, do you know how many there are, Tom? Off the top I of your head, I don't know. It's it's definitely like. I'd say at least over two dozen. 
I, I can't imagine it's any less than that. I mean, it might be, but that, that's the impression I'm getting. If I had to guess a number, I would guess two dozen. In the memory, uh, weird track, because it replaces, I think it replaces the unfortunately titled usual ending theme, The Morning Grow. Um, <laughs> yeah, which I think they meant glow, but yeah. It's a whole other story when they change that letter. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think it replaces that. It might replace the uh, other, like the credits theme. I don't know which one of those two it replaces, but that track replaces one of the two East One ending themes in two obscure PC versions of the game and nowhere else. So it's kind of weird. Like, I don't know why it replaces those. I don't know where it came from, but it is this really obscure like but very pretty track from yeah. a couple you know obscure versions of east one i wonder why like, that does it makes me really curious why they would change it too it just seems like sort of an i mean i i i, I say arbitrary not knowing the the context very well but it, it seems like that so it's it would be an interesting yeah. story to find out but and, uh yeah so you're probably wondering why it took us so long to get to east games we did mention that this podcast is going to primarily be about rare and obscure falcon music and that is an obscure track from east but there is also a specific reason why Tom asked us to play that song. Yep, and actually the next song we play too. I, I guess you guys probably will have seen the news already by the time this podcast goes live. East Memories of Celseta on the Vita is going to have a limited edition box set called the Silver Anniversary Edition. And it is going to include a compass, a cloth map of the East Celseta overworld, a book that's between like 90 and 100 pages with maps and art and stuff like that. It's Adol's travel journal, basically. Mm. And and the, the fourth, and in my opinion, uh, the, the coup de grace of the whole thing is the uh, three-disc History of East music CD collection. Because it is, you know, uh, East Salsetta was created to celebrate the uh, 25th anniversary of the series, we compiled basically 25 years worth of music from every East game, both original soundtrack and arranged versions, pretty much created a a three-disc selection of both the most important tracks and the most obscure tracks, and just other stuff that was pretty good, so we threw it on there kind of thing. And In the Memory will be one of the tracks on there. Hopefully, the final track listing hasn't been completely approved yet, so there is, you know, it is definitely subject to change, but In the Memory and the next song we play should both be included on, in the former case, Disc 1, and on the latter case, Disc 2. Which is, as a tremendous fan of East, that comes as awesome news to me i will probably buy that and the regular edition because i love east that much because i want to support you guys and because apparently i'm a brown noser but whatever so uh that's that's going to be amazing and we definitely appreciate you sharing that news with us on the podcast today i know that listeners you'll already know about this but yeah so i'm definitely looking forward to that and that brings us into our next block of tracks we're coming up to the end of the podcast here today this is our penultimate block it's got Song of an Angel from East 4. It's from the Falcom Special Box 1997. And following that, we have Snowbound Sacred Mountain from Nayuta no Kiseki, which is, as we mentioned before, that sort of not actually related to Zvai game. That's supposed to be a, a sort of a tangential spinoff of the Kiseki series. And following that, we have Inevitable Struggle from Zero no Kiseki. I selected the original version of the track, not the arranged or the Zero no Kiseki evolution version, just because I like that one better. So here we go.
very first thing I noticed about that track is how playful it is. It's like it's it's fun to listen to. Like I, I really like the energy in uh, "Song of an Angel." The uh, vocals in that reminded me of that. It had a very the very typical like '80s Japanese style. I've actually never seen the anime Blue Seed, but for some reason, like I had a friend that gave me the soundtrack to it on cassette a long time ago, and I've been listening to it ever since. It's like a staple in my library. So it's got that super cheesy 80s vocal kind of feeling. And it was almost exactly what I thought of when I heard Song of an Angel, like um, like maybe even Megumi Hayashibara almost. Yeah, well, the Midori Kawana, I'm not too familiar with her works, but I know that she was sort of like an anime heartthrob back in the day. And uh, she did the ending theme for an obscure anime called D4 Princess. The ending theme, Doriru Derundun Kururundun, was the name of the song. Oh my, um, that is a tongue Really, twister. really... Yeah, really cutesy song, as you might imagine from the name. But yeah, very, very good song that my friends and I were all into because we, we did a lot of like, you know, obscure anime at the time because anime was big and we were all about that. And so I, I was looking for other stuff by Midori Kawana and found Song of an Angel. And I had no idea it was East at the time. Like that was just a total shocker to me later when I played East 4 for the first time and heard the Roman army theme, which that's what that is, is the Roman army theme from East 4. And I was like, wait, this sounds like that Lion King-esque song I heard <laughs> way back when. And I, I like put two and two together and played it again. And I was like, wow, it is. It is that Lion King-esque song. That's awesome. So, yeah. And you said that song is actually going to be in the Silver Anniversary Edition as yes, well, right? Uh, well, tentatively, as as long as Falcom approves it, yeah. It's a pretty obscure track from uh, East 4. It was only ever released on the uh, Falcom Special Box in 1997. Midori Kawana Sings East disc, which had a few other tracks from her as well. And yeah, it's uh, easily the best track on that disc, and sort of a track that has a, a really special place in my heart, so I wanted to try to include it on the uh, anniversary set as well, because it is pretty unique too, and one of the things I wanted to do with the anniversary set was have a wide range of styles and i think that helps diversify it a little bit more yeah it's kind of like the uh, i don't know why it's reminding me of lunar back when lunar silver star story complete came out and they had the music cd and they included the uh the original opening from the sega cd version oh, of lunar yeah. the fighting through the darkness yeah it's which just, is also a really great song yeah it's yeah, just, yeah, i, I like that, that kind of like like cheesy fun it's it's the kind of thing that you listen to and you're like oh this is so cool because it links with my game and you know east when east 4 originally came out this technology wasn't advanced enough to have games that i guess i mean we had like sega cd but the songs were still largely synthesized or meaty or whatever so it was neat to have things like that like back in the day of lunar you'd have a full vocal song actually kind of like in last episode we were talking about girl in the tower it's fun to have Heck quote, yeah unquote, we were quote unquote real music that goes along with your game so i yeah a similar kind of vibe from song of an angel yeah that's actually uh, kind of interesting you mentioned that because east 4 was actually released on cd but that was not one of the cd audio tracks that was played through the uh, pc engine or the turbografx 16 like chiptune the original version of that there i don't think there ever has been like a, a full band version of it before this one uh, i could be wrong on that but yeah i i thought it was an interesting choice to take that particular track, too, which is supposed to be a military anthem, and turn it into that. Like, it's such an odd juxtaposition of things. It's like they yeah, set out it, to change it, or to, not to change yeah. it, but to do something interesting with it. But it, I, I think it definitely worked, and I, as sort of an aside, you know, kind of an extra piece of trivia, the Roman army theme was also reused in E6, the Ark of Nepishtim, so that melody might sound familiar to fans of E6 as well. Yes. There's a segment in Nepishtim where the Roman army attacks and you have to go rescue somebody from one of their ships, right? 
Yep. Yeah. And they do play that. I, I think they only play it during like one of the uh, anime cutscenes leading up to that. Ah, I see. But uh, yeah, it is played in E6 as well, which I thought was a nice throwback to E4. And the track is also in Celsetta, although it is sort of cut. Like they only play part of the track in Celsetta. It's kind of weird. Well, it's there in some yeah. form at least. So It is indeed. Yeah, so moving on from that, we listen to Snowbound Sacred Mountain from Naito no Kiseki, and we all agree that's one of the standout tracks on the album. The The whole album is really great and has a lot of very Falcom-y music, just sort of like that pumped-up high-energy mix of good synth, good guitar, and it excites you, and I, I really like this track. I actually I imported Naito no Kiseki last year I got it for my birthday. Uh, I told my friends, I was like, I want Naruto no Kiseki. They helped me get it, which was awesome. And one of the songs I remember, I remember actually hearing Tom talk about this game back then. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm going to import it. Or he had imported it and he shared, he was like, here's one of my favorite songs. It's Snowbound Sacred Mountain. So we're actually playing that here today. Go figure. Yeah, I the piano in that song, I just adored. It has like a, it has like an interestingly old school vibe to the piano. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Like the, it's really high energy. The tempo is really fast. And like the, the the violin and the synth together with the piano is just I adore that song and it is it so I'm guessing it takes place on like a like in a snow level or is it an actual is it a theme for the game or no it it, it does take place in a snowy level the the whole game I, I think I mentioned earlier Naito no Kiseki feels like the unofficial Sly three to me like I I really think Falcom probably originally was developing a sequel to Tsui and then decided at the last minute, like, eh, the Tsui games don't sell as well as the Kiseki games. Let's rename it or something. <laughs> um, so they called it Naito no Kiseki. It has actually nothing to do with the main Kiseki series, so that seems like a perfectly valid hypothesis, I guess. But uh, it is an incredibly fun game, um, and one of the gimmicks of it is that each of the stages, because it, it's split into stages, it has that kind of in common with the Tsui games and Gudamin. Each of the stages can be played in spring, summer, fall, or winter versions. And they're totally different. Like, I mean, it's the same layout, but, like, what's a water stage in spring might be an ice stage in winter, for example. Oh, that's or like, cool. Or, like, what's a, a just an ordinary sort of lush area in fall might actually have, like, poison flowers sprouting in spring or something. And so it's, it's kind of interesting how they change the levels significantly enough to make them really fresh and new just by changing the season. I, I really like the way they did that in the game, and the level designs are absolutely top-notch in that game. I imagine they must have put a ton of work into that, too, seeing as they had to make each stage four times basically yeah I, the game actually has a crap ton of replay value as a result because you only have to beat each stage in uh, i think two different seasons in order to get the bad ending which is pretty much like the ending and then you can continue the game in an epilogue which allows you to play the remaining two seasons of each stage in order to get a better ending and i've actually only beaten the game with a bad ending i have yet to play through the remainder like the second half of the game to get the good ending so that's sort of on my uh, on my plate for the future that sounds really cool and so, following that the, the last track that we played was inevitable struggle from zero no kiseki like i said that was the original version from the i guess would it be pc and psp or was that was that made PSP? That was a PSP exclusive. It was not ported to uh, PC until a Chinese company actually ported it to PC for China. And Falcom has since localized the Chinese PC version <laughs> to Japanese and released it on PC in so Japan. They're, they're as well. still doing that, see? They've, kind they've... of, but it's their own game, so yeah, yeah I, I don't know if that counts. I don't yeah. know. But uh, yeah, so that's the. Uh, it's one of the boss themes. If I don't know if it is it the final boss theme. Do you know? It's, I don't know, actually. I know it's 
a boss theme, whether it's the final boss theme or not, we'll, we'll never know unless we play the game. But I, I like that version actually better than one of the several arrangements that have come out since then because it's got really catchy synth melody that reminds me a lot of, like, Mega Man X. Um, yeah. It feels very, like, SNES to me. But uh, it's just, it's really, it's high energy. It pumps me up, and I love the all of the boss music pretty much in the Kiseki series. I think it's really strong. Tom may disagree with me a little bit there, but, but no, it's... I- Good stuff. I actually do like the uh, boss themes typically and the battle themes in general from the Kiseki series. But I, it's sort of like my dirty little secret as a Falcom fan is, uh, in general, I don't really think the Kiseki games have the greatest music. Like, I, I think they're still good, but I think they're overshadowed by most of Falcom's other series. Like, I think East sort of kicks it to the curb completely. And as, as a result, like, I've never really gotten into the Kiseki music. I don't find myself listening to it as often as I do East or Xanadu Next or even, like, Dinosaur Resurrection. Um, I generally find those being sort of uh, soundtracks I listen to, like, every once in a while, like, on a rainy day kind of thing instead. So I'm not as familiar with the uh, Kiseki music, but I do know Inevitable Struggle is definitely a standout track from Zero no Kiseki. Yeah, and, it's And uh, in general, boss themes from the series usually are and generally tend to be my favorites from those games. Yeah, because they often, they, they use recurring motifs, like you'll hear a tune somewhere in the game and then it'll lead up some to some really dramatic confrontation. It's like mixing together several characters' themes or whatever the situation may be to, to really enhance the impact of that track. So, And for, just in case, since we've given lessons on everything else so far, Zero no Kiseki is the fourth, am I right? fourth game in the Kiseki series, technically, after Sora no Kiseki or Trails in the Sky, and then second chapter, Sora no Kiseki the third, and then Zero no Kiseki and Ao no Kiseki come after those, but they don't, they, they have elements that carry over, is that correct? But they're not, like... They are basically sequels. Like, I, I mean, I actually have not played Zero no Kiseki and Ao no Kiseki just yet, so I can't say for sure, but I, I've talked to plenty of people who do, uh, or who have, rather, and as I understand it, they do have references that you're going to miss and that are very important references to the Soto no Kiseki trilogy. So generally, you should play the Soto no Kiseki games before playing Zero no Kiseki and Ao no Kiseki. And strangely enough, I've heard that Ao no Kiseki in particular has a lot of references to Sora the Third, which is the game that people don't usually seem to talk about as much. But apparently it is a very important game in connecting the Sora no Kiseki trilogy with the later titles. And so. I hope I get to play those games someday. <laughs> someday. Yeah. I hope we get to finish those yeah. games. I am, I am not going to har- harangue you about it because everybody does all the time. So. so that brings us to our final two tracks for the day. They are both my selections. I'm beating Tom's hand away from the cookie jar of delicious music. Um, I've selected a track from East vs. Sora no Kiseki Alternative Saga, which is a fi- sort of like a crossover fighting game. It's almost in the vein of like, I guess it would be like Dissidia in yeah. the, the East and uh, SNK universe. Um, this is the opening theme. It's called Daybreak. And by the way, the game is awesome and really import-friendly, although it does spoil a lot of Sora no Kiseki's second chapter, um, if you have any knowledge of Japanese. And uh, rather, just like the appearance of a couple characters, they're kind of spoilery. And I didn't know that before I got the game. But uh, anyway, so <laughs> great game, uh, great opening song, Daybreak. And after that, final track for the day is The Dawn of East. It's from um, East Zanmai, which is an album that we recently reviewed on the site. Pet Gan reviewed it. And this is a, it's a track that's actually from East Celseta to close us out and bring us full circle. So let's ease it up with our final two tracks. Woo! 
so we had a really interesting conversation about uh, Ease No Sora No Kiseki Alternative Saga, like the, the fighting game. And I really like the, the intro song on this. It, the, the violin and that just we, – we, we said uh, Falcom and violin have had a great relationship in recent years, and I couldn't agree more. That's – for me, it's the standout part of, the, of um, Daybreak. I just love that. Yeah. Now, that, that soundtrack, actually, I really wish Falcom would sell the soundtrack on its own. Right now, you can only get the uh, soundtrack to that game alongside uh, the game itself as part of, like, an LE set that they released. And it's a two-disc set. I mean, the game uses, like, 100-plus tracks from other Falcom games, so it's wow. obviously not the full soundtrack. But the soundtrack includes all of the original music composed for the game, as well as a selection of their other stuff that's used in there. And just some, like, random crap they tossed on for the hell of it that's also really awesome. Like, stuff from Sorcerian Online, stuff from Tsvai Online, and stuff, like, unused tracks from VM Japan, stuff like that. That is really and cool. It's it's a really, really good album. It's, like, an excellent two-disc set that is just, it flows incredibly well, really well put together. Also comes in, like, a full-size DVD case with, like, this huge booklet of liner notes, full color, which usually you don't get with Falcom CDs, so... It's like a fantastic Falcom album. It's just a shame it's not available as a standalone, because we totally recommend people pick it up. But yeah. it's worth it even with the game. I mean, the game is pretty damn good, too. It is. And something interesting about the game is that there's a shop, basically, where you where you can buy things like new stages, and there is a ton of music. And like, like Tom said, there's so much that they couldn't even fit it on the soundtrack. But yeah, there's just a ton of music that you can buy in the game, you know, with, like, in-game currency to uh, to play in stages. And there's a lot of other cool cameos from old Falcom titles. Like, you can summon in little... There's, like, little uh, assist cut-ins, almost like when you see a special attack in E7 or E7. Yeah. Did 7 have cut-ins? I don't remember. Um, it, it did have little cut-ins, but yeah. they were just, you know, the character that you were controlling cut-in sort yeah. of thing. So it has that kind of thing where you where it brings you a cool little special attack cut-in. And they have characters from non-East and Sora no Kiseki games, just old Falcom stuff. Yeah, and I, I was mentioning... While while we were listening to it too, uh, the game, the game's story, which is you know, it's a fighting game story, so you don't want to expect too much of it. But characters from E7 and from the Trail series were basically sucked into the world of Xanadu Next. So all of the locations in the game are actually taken from Xanadu Next, and all of the BGM that plays during story scenes is also taken from the Xanadu Next soundtrack. So it's kind of another odd little tie-in with uh, Falcom history that I thought was an unusual but pretty cool choice. It sounds like it's just Falcom Smash Brothers. That sounds really cool. Like, I haven't even played most of the games, and I want to try it just to see, like, all that stuff together. Yeah, I would recommend it. I mean, I have it, so I'll play it with you. Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you can do online. uh, Oh, can you? It's, like, infrastructure, though, so it's, like... I guess you can do online, but you have to, like, do it, like, bounce over... Uh, I, I don't know how the infrastructure thing works on PSP. But yeah, it's... You might be able to do ad hoc yeah. party or something. But, yeah, it, yeah, it's obtuse. I'm sure we could figure it out, though. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's it's definitely pretty fun. Uh, my only gripe with it is that you have too many moves that your characters can perform, and there just aren't enough buttons on the PSP, can, you know, the PSP to handle them all. So you're constantly, like, fighting the controls because there's just too much crap you can do. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. Yeah, I'd love to see an HD version on a on PS3 or something. Not that that will ever happen. That would be pretty cool, though. But yeah, well, I still want to see a Dissidia on PS3. Oh man, me too. Just imagine, just imagine. All our anyway, crossover the, dreams. Uh, yeah. The, so the final song we listened to, but other than Tom's secret guest track that's coming up to close us out today, 
was from East on Might. It was the Dawn of East, and that is another awesome song with a great violin melody. I really love it when the violin kicks up in that, and I don't know what else to say. It pumps me up, just like everything else I've described today. I'm ready for dinner. In my... <laughs> In my notes, I wrote, holy crap, all caps, rocking guitar. Because this is like, this is the guitar that people know Falcom for. Like, when I think Falcom, this is what I hear. And I was like, I, I like this, the whole idea behind this on my albums anyway. But Falcom and I should be best friends because with how much I love, like, the music of games, like, they just, they do so much with their music. And this is like, this is the signature I, I imagine when I think of Falcom. And I think they did a great job with this track. I'm not terribly familiar with the Celsetta soundtrack yet. I've, I've heard it. Uh, but I haven't I haven't played the game yet, but I will be. And uh, but I, I really liked I, I I vaguely recall this track, and uh, I, I think they did a great job arranging it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very very positive on it. The Dawn of East is actually featured in the original East Four as well. In fact, you know one of the versions of the original East Four was East Four: The Dawn of East. So that, that was the opening theme to that version. Um, I actually like the East Four: The Dawn of East opening theme version a little bit better because it's kind of weird. It's totally not standard for Falcom, but they kind of turned it into like a jazz track, heavy on saxophone instead of guitar, and it works really well with Dawn of East, I think. But the rock track definitely is very indicative of a modern JDK band, and modern JDK band is amazing, and the violin is synonymous with modern JDK band, because they're actually fronted by their violinist, who I, I can't recall her name offhand right now, but she, if you ever see like live footage, she has like the biggest smile on her face while she's playing the violin like at the front of this like kick-ass rock band oh that's awesome yeah you can totally see why like she loves what she does and she is such a virtuoso with that thing like if you listen to like some of the arranged tracks from uh the east origin super arranged version like especially guilty fire her violin work on that is absolutely unreal like it's amazing she can play it that fast and that accurately. And that track, by the way, is also going to be on the Celsetta LE uh, three-disc set. So. Ooh, excellent. But yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, Falcom's violin work is absolutely amazing. It mixes with the guitars extremely well. That, that version of Dawn of East is probably not my favorite JDK band, like rock and guitar track, or rock and uh, violin track. But it's a very, very good example of the kind of stuff they can pull off. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty pretty up there definitely good stuff well, excellent well i think that about wraps us up for tonight we uh we have given you huge amounts of falcom love so we we, we were waiting to do the falcom episode and we, we kept promising it and we definitely uh we wanted to do it right and i i've had a blast this is we've listened to some really fantastic music and again the history lesson was a lot of fun because it's i have a much better appreciation now for just how again i i'll use the word again but the breadth of falcom's work is crazy and just so many different iterations of the, of the JDK band and of their own arrangements and of just arrangements of other people's music. They've just, there is such a huge variety to both the styles of game and the music you can have in a Falcom title. And I, I am, I want to go play all of these games. I know I won't have time to, but I definitely need to p- at least pick a few of them out. Cause just based on what we've listened to, it sounds like there's a lot to listen, a lot more to hear, but as we always do for the listeners, if you have suggestions for how we can improve the show, please feel free to contact us via the, the message board, email, anything you want. If you want to contact us and tell us how awesome Tom was, please do, and you definitely should. And if you have you know any uh, suggestions for topics, tracks you want to hear, anything like that, feel free to hit us up with that. And uh, again, Tom, thanks so much for spending your evening with us. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and you're welcome back anytime. Yes, thank well, you, thank- Tom. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate having a chance to just sit down and chat about Falcom music with you guys. 
it's yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it because it's it was you know I learned and you uh you, you you dispensed sage wisdom. I learned as well. So the the fun the, the well the whole thing was fun, but the the fun part for me is always wondering what's coming last. So because I can't listen to this in advance. So Tom, hit us. Okay. So uh, uh, apologies. I'm, I'll try not to go long in my explanation here, but basically one of the most classic Falcom tracks of all time is the original JDK band, like the 80s and 90s JDK band version of uh, To Make the End of Battle. And that's, I mean, that's sort of a classic track. Um, people have probably, like a lot of people have seen the music video. It was included in like the East Anime OAV uh, DVD set. You can watch the music video there. Um, it's on YouTube as well. Uh, definitely worth checking out. But what I decided uh, as my secret track, Falcom JDK Band, the new JDK Band, has released numerous albums recently, including one called Falcom JDK or Falcom versus JDK Band 2010 Summer. And in that version, they have a lot of E7 tracks, for example, that they uh, did live performances of. And they also took a Gudamin track, which has the uh, name To Make the End of Digging. Um, and it's it's used as the uh, yeah it, it's obviously a pun on to make the end of battle or not a pun but a direct reference basically the original track was modeled after the original to make the end of battle it has sort of the same chord progressions and things to it and it was used as the secret boss theme in Gudamin against like the optional super hard boss and on Falcom versus JDK band 2010 summer. They have a version of To Make the End of Digging performed in the style of the original JDK bands To Make the End of Battle. Oh, wow. And it's awesome. It actually has a lot of guitar riffs and uh, like bass solos taken directly from the original To Make the End of Battle JDK band version. But it's To Make the End of Digging. And just to make it even more awesome, they actually added saxophone on top of their guitars and stuff. Wonderful. So it's it's a unique track, really fun version of the song. And I think it, it exemplifies obscure Falcom, but also remembering the roots of Falcom. So that's oh. my pick. All right. Well, again, for Derek, for Tom, for myself, thank everybody for listening. Tom, thank you for being here tonight. Derek, thank you for being here as well, as always. And to thank make, you again. To make the end of podcast, we will to make the end of digging.
Honk. Off <laughs> 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 to a great start. Yep. All right. And anyway. go. And go.